Good afternoon. You're listening to TikTok on CITR 101.9 FM, broadcasting from the unceded ancestral territory of the Huckamanum-speaking Musqueam people. My name is Madeline Taylor, and it is December 3rd, 2015. This week at CITR and in the last couple of weeks, we've been having lots of conversations around sexualized violence and gender-based violence and violence against marginalized communities, such as uh, resonating reconciliation, what that means for indigenous communities here at UBC, Transgender Day of Remembrance, which was on November 20th. And we've also been talking about the media firestorm that's taken place around the the mishandling by UBC of sexual assault allegations from women in the history department against one student. There was a documentary released by the CBC and the Fifth Estate um, last week that covered it. It's called School of Secrets, if you're so inclined. But anyways, it's been a heavy few weeks, and coming up this weekend is... Um, the anniversary of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre that took place in 1989 in Montreal, where 14 female engineering students were gunned down by a man who targeted them for their gender. So needless to say, it's been a challenge to deal with all of these different topics um, as a media outlet. It's been a challenge to have these things on our minds as a station, and I just wanted to give a shout-out to everyone who's been so strong and so composed in uh, having these conversations as members of this community. So to start things off, I'm going to play a song by a band out of Toronto called Dilly Dally. They played at CITR uh, about a month ago live in studio. It was fantastic time. You can find the podcast on our website. And the song is called Purple Rage.
So that was Dilly Dally with a track off of their most recent album, which is called Soar. It's out on Buzz Records out of Toronto. Um, it's a great, great record. They're a lot of fun. They played live in CITS Studios about a month ago. If you're ever interested in coming on down to the station, finding out about when we're going to have live bands in, where you can hear the podcast, we've got all of that information on our website, citr.ca, along with lots of other things. So as I've said, this week and the last couple of weeks, there's been some really challenging conversations around the station due to all of the memorializing that's going on around violence for marginalized communities. So coming up this weekend on December 6th, On Sunday, it is Canada's National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. So this Day of Remembrance was started following the École Polytechnique massacre that happened in 1989 in Montreal, where, as I said, 14 female engineering students were murdered and they were targeted for their gender. So in Vancouver, on December 6th, Uh, an organization called Women Transforming Cities are hosting their 30th cafe with the topic, Does Remembering Lead to Action? So a couple of different things are happening on Sunday, December 6th. You can attend a vigil from 10.30 a.m. to 11 a.m. at the Marker of Change Monument in Thornton Park at Main Street and Terminal Avenue. It's called the Women's Monument. For details, you can visit the Rose website. And then the Women Transforming Cities Cafe is happening from 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. at the Hartwood Community Cafe on Broadway in Vancouver. It's very close to the corner of Broadway and Kingsway in East Vancouver, so 317 East Broadway. That's 11.30 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. for the Women Transforming Cities Cafe on the topic of Does Remembrance Lead to Action? Which I think is an incredibly valid point. It's something that probably isn't queried often enough. We have so many days of remembrance, and while consciousness raising is essential, I wonder if it's often lip service to the communities affected by those actions of violence um, and whether it really leads to tangible change. So. Um, Yeah, so for the next 20 minutes or so on the show, I'm going to be airing um, a conversation that was had by Emily Blake, one of our News 101 directors, and Lucia Lorenzi, who is a PhD student here at UBC in the Faculty of Literature, English Literature, Um, and Lucia is a survivor of sexual assault um, on campus. She's spoken very publicly about it and come out once again publicly publicly in the wake of the firestorm around the sexual assaults in the history department that were under addressed and neglected by the UBC administration. So they had a conversation last week. It aired originally on News 101 um, at 5 p.m. on Friday, November 27th. You can find the podcast at News 101. Um, at CITR.ca for the rest of the episode, but here is that conversation between Lucia and Emily. ...with students at a university in Halifax. Now students at UBC have been outed for making a chant advocating the rape of underage girls. 
It's the third attack at the school and staff and students are being warned to be extra vigilant. UBC is posting security guards at all six of its student residences after dark and asking for even greater vigilance. The move comes after news the RCMP is now investigating six sexual assaults on campus. That is up from the original three. 27-year-old UBC student has admitted in court he attacked a young female student on the campus earlier this year. Over the past few years, issues of sexual assault at UBC have been making headlines. From pro-rape chants at Frost Week in 2013 to underreporting cases of sexual assault, it appears that there's a serious problem on campus. Recently, CBC's The Fifth Estate released their documentary, School of Secrets. In it, they investigate allegations against Ph.D. history student Dmitry Mordanoff. The Fifth Estate contacted half a dozen people who'd filed complaints to UBC about Mordvinov, from inappropriate touching to sexual assault. The women who lived with him at UBC's Green College residence felt, in their words, he was a menace that needed to be stopped, and they were expecting the school would back them up. But it was not until last week that UBC expelled Mordvinov, and many of the women who spoke out say that they feel betrayed by the university. I talked with Lucia Lorenzi, a doctoral candidate in English at UBC. She is also an anti-violence activist and writes The Body Politic, a blog for Rabble.ca. She talks about her reaction to the documentary and how we can better support survivors of sexual assault. The Fitzsimmons documentary just came out. What are your thoughts on it? I think that it comes at a really interesting time in the sense that we've been having these conversations for a couple of years, and UBC has obviously been implicated in some of those conversations, but this kind of really signals a moment where they're being called to account in, in a different way. Um, it's not just chance anymore. Um, it's about looking at how actual change needs to be made and how people have really been failed by the system. Um, that's the fifth estate gave a lot of time and space to uh, the women who were involved, and I thought that was really uh, generous and really important to really give time to understanding what actually happened and the impact that it has had. And as you said, uh, these conversations have kind of been ongoing, and sexual assault on campuses isn't a new issue. Why do you think now it's being discussed more widely? Um, I think that there's, there, I guess there's movement across North America and that we see a lot of activism going on in the American context, and I think that kind of has moved up across the border, and now we're having more of those similar conversations. I think it's time also because at UBC in particular, there was a task force that was struck a couple of years ago um, after the rape chance, and so... You know, we're kind of in that space where we've been hopefully wanting to have policies and have things implemented, and we're seeing that that's not necessarily happening. So, unfortunately, it falls often to survivors and allies to start the conversation again. So, interim uh, UBC President Martha Piper responded to the documentary, and you made a blackout poem of the response. Would you mind telling mm -hmm. me about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm obviously as a literature student, I'm interested in how, how language works and how stories get told. And I always pay very careful attention to how things are said. And I think that institutional apologies are, are really interesting documents insofar as um, they're very heavily constructed. They often say a lot of things without really saying things. And so my goal in the blackout poem 
was to take that institutional apology and remix it and and basically just show what really needed to be said in my opinion, was very simple, but apologies don't need to be complicated and sort of buffered by all of this institutional language. Why do you think the issues of sexual assault on campuses and the way institutions respond to them continues to be such an issue? I think there are a couple of things going on. Um, you know, there's obviously many survivors who are coming forward and we know from different cases in different universities that it's not necessarily a new battle. Sometimes we forget the historical precedents, you know, 20, 30 years ago in different spaces. Um, I think that it's, you know, it's an issue that really challenges some of the most fundamental questions that we have. It challenges questions about our legal system and where is it that people go to get justice? Who is able to give that kind of justice? What are the processes that are going on? And I think it also brings into question what institutions like universities think about themselves. I mean, we'd like to think, I think, that universities are places where really morally upstanding ethical students and citizens go, but we know that they're really just microcosms of society at large, and that can include perpetrators of sexual violence. So rather than thinking that somehow places like you know, UBC are going to be exempt from that, I think we need to shift the conversation to, well, these people might come into our spaces and our universities. We screen for grades and academic excellence. We don't necessarily look um, at other parts of people's character. So I guess it's having that conversation of what do we do knowing that these people are in our community and might continue to be in our community. How do you think maybe the average student could go about, you know, making this change? I mean, I think that students can really be part of some really phenomenal change on campus. I think it's really hard to create change when it's only a top-down approach. So say, you know, the president or the administration saying, okay, every department has to have a policy. We need to have these things in place. When it comes from students, and students are the ones that are invested in making their departments or their campus safe spaces, I think that's where change comes along. And when they push that initiative, then it's created with the specific needs of communities in mind, right? Because we know that our campus is very diverse. We know there are a lot of different populations on campus that have different needs. Um, there are different campus situations in terms of maybe a lab versus the architecture of a specific space that has different safety concerns. So I think when students get involved and when they take leadership, which is what I'm seeing with the history students, I think that's where some of the most long-lasting change can occur. And you've spoken out about your own personal experience mm -hmm. and how institutions have failed to support you. Mm -hmm. What is it like being a survivor and not being supported? It's really, it's, it's a very difficult thing. I know in my case it was slightly different in that I didn't report to my department or the university at the time that it happened. Uh, but when I came forward four years later to talk about it, I did so very much with the intention that I wanted my story to mean something and to matter and to make a difference. And um, it, it really didn't, and that was very frustrating. It was really difficult to have administrators come up to me at a sexual assault conference and say, we really want to talk to you. This is very important. It's very urgent. We meant to reach out to you a couple months ago, but we didn't. 
And I thought, okay, well, this is a chance for me to be involved and to give some insight into why I didn't report, what I was afraid of. And what I was afraid of actually kind of came true, which is that people didn't respond to my emails. Nobody followed up. And so it felt very much like a, a double injury, that being assaulted was bad enough. I had to deal with further injury from the institution when they didn't want to listen to me. So obviously it's not an easy thing to talk about, but why is it important for you to keep speaking out about it? I think for me, in my particular case, um, I've kind of lost faith in a lot of systems, um, the justice system, the legal system. I don't want to lose faith in communities like the ones that I've found at UBC. And I think that survivors, you know, we don't come forward because we hate our institutions. Usually we come forward because we care very much about our communities, where we work, um, sometimes if we live on campus, um, where we do extracurricular activities. And so for me, knowing very well how stacked the justice system is against survivors, speaking out very much feels like an opportunity to get justice and to make what happened to me have some sort of meaning in the long run. And for survivors, if the justice system's stacked against them and institutions aren't supporting them and maybe in the ways that they need, where can they go to get support? Yeah, I mean, I think that we sort of have this larger cultural narrative of, you know, just go to the police, just go do this. Um, I think that resources such as sexual assault support centers on campus are really really important. It's been only just, I guess, over a decade or so since we've had one at UBC. Other universities are still trying to get one started. And also I think what's been happening with a lot of this activism lately is that survivors have been able to connect with each other and that there's solidarity there. I mean, I know that there are a lot of um, community organizations that are there and willing to support survivors, but one of the things that's frustrating is, of course, a lot of places are very underfunded. So if survivors are referred off campus for support, for instance, they might wait up to a year and a half for individual counseling, which then might put their academic progress at risk. So it's really about, I think, lots of different agencies coming together, both on campus and off, to figure out how survivors can be supported. And what can people do to support someone in their lives who's been affected by sexual assault? I mean, I guess there's a couple of things. Um, education is really important. I think that a lot of people, um, there are always going to be the people who have really problematic views about sexual assault, and those people are very difficult to navigate. But I think there are a lot of people also who are very well-meaning. They don't quite know what to say. They don't quite know what to do. And there are resources to help people who are helping other people. And I think it's really important for allies and friends and family and even professors and teaching assistants as people who have direct contact with students, professors and teaching assistants might be the first people that survivors disclose to. And that first person that gets disclosed to is often um, really important because their reaction can kind of change one way or another what the impact will be on a survivor, either positive, that they'll be able to seek further support, or negative, that their seeking of support might be shut down. So I think it's really important to have things like training programs on campus for not just residents, advisors, but for everyone who has, you know, contact with students and who is involved in the campus community. So in a recent article um, on the blog that you write, The Body Politic, on Rabble.ca, 
you wrote about how the labor of healing often falls on women, when it, especially in the cases of sexual assault. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I look at the, the kind of the communities that I know, uh, people who work in the anti-violence sector, people who work in, in policy, and especially now with all of the activism that's going on around the issue of sexual assault, it often falls to primarily women, um, also other people who face different intersections of oppression. It often falls to the people who are most directly affected by the issue to deal with it and to talk about it. And what would be great is if other people, other stakeholders, would kind of get involved and take a little bit of the pressure off so that it's not always survivors who have to be you know, raising the issue once again and making noise about it. What would it mean for other people to take leadership and to say, this is a really important conversation. Um, let's not wait until a survivor comes forward to have it. Let's just have it now because we think that it's important. And also in the article you address how last year there was kind of what were being deemed as watershed moments, like mm-hmm. the Gian Gamasi ac- accusations and the hashtag never uh, been raped, never reported. What do you think, if anything, have we learned since then? I mean, I guess, I guess I'd say we've learned that we have more learning to do, if that doesn't sound too strange. I think we're learning that this is only the beginning of a conversation, and I, I think that those conversations that we had last year were really important. It was unusual to see sexual assault be covered consistently in the mainstream media for, I think it was like three, four, or five weeks. That doesn't happen all the time, but that can't just be the beginning and end of the conversation. It has to be the continuing of it. And I think what happens even with cases of campus sexual assault, right, this is in the news right now, and institutions might respond, but what happens after that? What happens beyond the press release? How are they going to continue to collaborate with and listen to survivors? And it's hard because these issues can't stay in the news cycle all of the time because it's very, very um, quick-moving. But I think there needs to be accountability behind the scenes and people who make sure that the conversation keeps going even after it's not in the headlines anymore. Are there any remaining thoughts or things that you'd like to add? I think that there's a real opportunity here for UBC to take leadership in a way that isn't uh, defensive or reactive, but that can be proactive. And one of the things I'd really like to see um, is to have survivors kind of brought to the table and to have a seat at the table, not to necessarily criticize the institution, but to give feedback and to be... um, to be able to participate in leaving a, a legacy for other survivors. I think it's hard sometimes for us to think that, you know, there might be other people who are in the same positions that we were, and it's a very difficult position to be in. And my hope is that people who might be assaulted years down the road have an easier process, because we know that this can really, really damage people's careers. Lots of people drop out. They're their progress is delayed, which delays other things. It can be great economic costs as well as social and psychological. And I think that the process can be made much, much easier. Thank you very much for taking the time to speak with me. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. For our last story of the evening, we have News 101 financial reporter Alex Norman.
So that was Emily Blake of News 101 speaking with Lucia Lorenzi, a Ph.D. student here at UBC, about her experience of surviving sexual assault on campus and the response the university had to her story once she went public, um, as well as all of the allegations that have come forward in recent weeks. So thanks for tuning in to TikTok. Uh, I am on air every Thursday night from 7.30 to 8 p.m. You can find more TikTok episodes at citr.ca. Up next is The Spice of Life, and I'm going to leave you with a song from one of my favorite Vancouver bands. This is Lie with Sorry. Talk to you next week. Yeah.